So many of us in the West, we're so identified with mind, we think we, it's who we are. So when we ask the question, like, who am I? The first thing that comes to mind is all the properties of the thinking mind. And that's what gets us into trouble. And when I found the Eastern philosophers, they had recognized the mind as a separate entity. And this goes right through Taoism and Buddhism. They're just so explicit about it. You are not mind. You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 90, The End Zone, a Beacon Series conversation featuring Chris Niebauer, Ph.D., author of No Self, No Problem, How Neuropsychology is Catching Up to Buddhism from Hierophant Publishing. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. I once read that the very toxic escalation of ego-driven me culture started its ascent with the invention of the mirror. Long before one could truly see their own reflection with clarity, the best way to gain a clear picture of the self was in relationship with others. The mirror came along, the self became even more infatuated with the appearance of the self, and thus began our evolutionary slide into the maddening nature of influencer culture and selfies. We see images of ourselves digitally displayed and shared more than any other time in human history. Inflated egos rule the signals, indoctrinating us into tribes and cults of personality, and somewhere in this maelstrom we cling to identities that are a little more than piles of historical rubbish, random filaments of experience and memory drawn together to form a conscious being that I call me. I look over there and I see another cluster that I call you. What happens when we start sifting through the curated bits and pieces that make up these selves we've become so enamored with? Am I my brain, my body, my memories, my nerves, my breath? When I feel love in my heart, where is my heart exactly? And what do I even mean by that? When I'm sad and I suffer, where is the suffering and who is it happening to? What about my love for you or the compassion that is activated when you are in pain? Is this indicative of a connected and collective bond between you and I that dissolves the common concepts of individualism and identity that we're familiar with? I brought these questions and more to my conversation on Find the Good News when I visited with Chris Niebauer, Ph.D., author of No Self, No Problem, How Neuropsychology is Catching Up to Buddhism. In the early 90s, Chris noticed many similarities in psychology, neuroscience, and the teachings of Buddhism, Taoism, and many other Eastern spiritual traditions, and he has explored these intersections for over two decades. What Chris presents is a confirmation that the latest research in neuropsychology resonates with the Buddhist doctrine of no-self, which refers to the solidified ego identity as a fabrication of the left side of the brain. This doesn't mean you don't exist or that you are somehow not real, but rather that the ego that you've identified with is perhaps not the real you at all. What's beautiful about Chris Niebauer's book, the exercises it contains, and this conversation is that they encourage us to go on an expedition into inner and uncharted zones that challenge who we think we are. No Self, No Problem brings us to a shared space outside of corrosive hyper-individualism, beyond the otherhood of the left brain, and into the right brain experience of brotherhood. Now, tune your attention to this good news beacon and press play on a little... Good news. Wake up this morning. You're dreaming up the story I can hear. The way it's going, cause you're laughing in your sleep. On the path to deliverance and a holy 
light Old news, bad news, fake news Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source. With my Find the Good News Beacon series, I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them. I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. The book's title is No Self, No Problem, How Neuropsychology is Catching Up to Buddhism. So when that book was put in front of me, I immediately perked up because Buddhism has played a huge part in my overall well-being for a very, very long time. And as I was reading your book, I actually noticed right at the beginning that you and I had a couple of uh, interesting intersections that maybe we can talk about. I'll bring up as we're discussing. But for my audience who doesn't know who I'm talking to, if you could give them your elevator pitch introduction that would be fantastic okay um i spent a lot of time in my 20s doing two things getting a phd in neuropsychology and suffering from extreme neurosis (laughs) 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 that that was what my 20s was either uh living in this continuous moment thinking i was going to die from one thing or another or trying to find some answer with neuropsychology. And, I, and neuropsychology, it, it, it's, a, it's a great place to kind of set your foundation, but I found that it wasn't really getting me where I needed to go. And I was introduced to Alan Watts and Buddhism and Taoism and uh, Hindu philosophy. And I just found that what I was dealing with, as far as the kind of suffering aspects of the mind, they offered me a very interesting way out that I had not considered before. I find that fascinating. You, you sharing that specifically right out of the gate opens up (laughs) a door for me. And that was the connection I was talking about. I went through an experience, not that dissimilar from what you just described, probably a lot better than I've described it. In fact, I've brought it up on this show in various forms with different guests, but I consider it, I always called it the day I woke up, or at least I thought I woke up because I was in the same state. I, I wasn't sick physically. I was fine, but there was something wrong with my mind because exactly as you said, you used the word death and dead. I was felt consumed with it. Like I was dead. I've told many people that I said, that's the only way I can say it. Now on reflection, all these, you know, these two decades later, I look back and I go, well, maybe it was depression. I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, it was cracking me up and the world just looked broken. And I felt like I didn't even know who I was. And it made me ask the question, who am I? What am I? And all of that just sort of, that was the door to discovery. And and you, and and you bringing up Taoism, Buddhism, I went looking because I was, I was like, what is it? Uh, that's going on here. And it was like a, this 
path of self-discovery, you know, and, and landing in some of those same high notes that you just mentioned. So your book was all about that. I mean, that was why I just sucked this thing up because yeah. I was like, oh, this is the question. This is the first question right here. Who am I? Yeah. And it's, a, it's one of those things you can spend, you know, who, who am I? Who, am, who's, who is suffering right now? Right. And, and why, why is it? And to me, this, this was my kind of moment. And it was my kind of uh, epiphany when I understood when I when it really hit me hard that the more I kept, the more I went out of this, the more I want out of suffering, the deeper I keep getting into it. The, <laughs> the, the more the more I tried to get out of anxiety, the more anxious I would become. And it just kind of clicked. And I'm like, wait a minute. This isn't a coincidence. If, yeah. if there's something connected here where the it, it's me trying to get out that's digging me deeper every time I tried to get out. I would find myself, um, you know, in a worse position than if I had done nothing. And that's when all the Buddhist stuff about nothingness and, and Wu Wei, this idea of no effort, it just hit me like, that's what they're talking about. Yeah. So when did you discover, when was your first encounter with these teachings? Did you go seeking them out or did they come at you kind of sideways? You know, because that's a lot. For me, it was like a... I guess it was one thing would lead to another. I would go in search of an answer and then I would hear maybe a piece of wisdom from like a quote from the Tao Te Ching. And I was go, what's the Tao Te Ching? That was kind of how it was for me. And so then I'd go down this path and almost feel overwhelmed and go, Oh, I found the answer here in the Tao Te Ching. And then, you know, it would be, uh, an, a quote by somebody and then it would lead me down a Buddhist path. And so that was how it was for me. I didn't like consciously know where I was going or what I was really looking for. Is that, was it like that for you or did you like yeah. go straight in and go, okay, I'm going to look for this. No, I would say it was very similar for me. It came in hints. It came from little hints from the universe that I needed to start listening to. Um, and, it, and, and the recognition of the mind, that's the interesting thing about the mind. Um, so many of us in the West, we're so identified with mind. We don't even know, we don't even, we think it's who we are. Yeah. So when we ask the question, like, who am I? The first thing that comes to mind is all the properties of the thinking mind. And that's what gets us into trouble. And when I found the Eastern philosophers, they had recognized the mind as a separate entity. And this goes right through uh, Taoism and Buddhism. And they've all, they're just so explicit about it. You are not mind. And that hit me very, like, I guess I wouldn't say it hit me all at once. It was like you said, it was like a kind of slow process where I, I would realize that um, the thoughts were not necessarily my own. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, the, and, the, and the suffering wasn't necessarily my suffering. The depression I, was my depression and the anxiety wasn't my anxiety. It's very interesting. I... You know, it didn't hit me probably that what you're talking about about that the uh, I guess maybe the the part about the mind until I went to counseling. I was in my probably mid twenties and I was going through some marital problems, but I went to counseling, and I think I still to this day will talk about this counselor's one session, and this the, the counselor he was a good listener. And he was picking up on stuff I didn't even know I was putting out, you know. And he asked me something. He said, was your dad an alcoholic? And mm -hmm. I said, no, actually. Uh, 
there was no drinking was allowed in our home. I mean, it was pretty strict and like that. No drugs, no drinking, no smoking. It was like that. And he goes, interesting. He said, because you have all the markers of adult children of alcoholic syndrome. Well, I'd never heard of that before. And he's, I'm going to give you a book and I want you to read it. So I read the book and I actually was kind of spooked out by that book because it was like looking in a mirror. And mm. so that, that led me down this, I, that was the, that was the spark for me at that point where I went, okay, all this stuff, this neurotic stuff, these anxieties, these fears, this is just stuff that comes from my historical timeline growing up in this environment. And I've been living as if that were me. And like mm-hmm. in that moment, it was a big clarity of clarification that, oh, I don't, have to be all those things that's just my that's historical Oren. Mm-hmm. but there's and i had this sense at that moment that there was another and i hate to use the word me but it was like there's a me that's not that mm-hmm. and who is what is that that was a that was a very important question at that time yeah there was a i had a very similar experience where uh during my exploration with Alan Watts, I came across one of his quotes where he said, you're under no obligation to be the same person you were five minutes ago. <laughs> and I, it was very freeing. And I, I'm like, why? You know, here's the suffering self. And, and and it was like, there's so many doors open and I didn't know that they were open. And, yeah. I, and I'm like, I don't have to be this. I don't have to be this. I don't have to be anyone in particular. And that was very freeing for me to kind of explore different selves. And, 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 and that still sticks with me today. I have no... Uh, 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 commitment to consistency. And and this gets interesting with the people around me. Like my wife will say that sometimes having a conversation with me will give you whiplash because you could just, <laughs> just, just one self comes on, then another self, and then another self. And um, I've learned to kind of flow with the selves. That is and- beautiful, actually. And you know, you just, you're getting into the heart of something I actually struggle with is that. Um identity and how I've almost, and it's a little trick I've played on myself and I'm doing it right now, actually, where I go, it's a mode of operating, uh, operating mode. And I go, okay, in this circumstance, this persona that, uh, I'm gonna call it like the, the higher self. This is the person that needs to be the listener to someone's pain in that mall or their sorrow or their story or whatever it may be that persona has a whole different tone to it almost. And I'm okay to step in. I'm getting learning to be okay to step into that, but that's not the whole of me. And I could step out and be dad. Yeah. But it's like you I love the way you described it. It's almost like, you know, it's a knee jerk. Cause I might be in one mode or another, depending on what, who in my family I'm engaging with or, or in the world. I'm okay with that, but I don't know what that looks like from the outside. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting you put it like that because the people we interact with, particularly family, and I love a quote by Ram Dass. He put it so well. He said, you think you're enlightened, go spend a weekend with your family. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and family has a unique way of, of triggering, triggering old selves. You That's know? true. I, and they they bring and so even if you get out of the habit and you feel pretty confident and you're and you're feeling um, uh, enlightened and light and and, <laughs> and and positive and then sometimes you go back to an old situation and that old habit comes back online and then you you know it's we got to go easy on ourselves with that because it's just an old habit and, and you know there's yeah. no reason to cling to that either it's, it's so what you know it happened let it go 
Yeah. Well, in your book, I mean, you, you kind of walk through all the different, uh, different things that could be creating a, a self, right? And I, I, I'd never really read about left brain, right brain, not in the way you, you outlined it in your book. And, uh, you know, I've heard that before. As somebody who works in a creative industry, I've always said, oh, you're a right brain. Like I always associate it with creative flow, but I've never really stopped to, understand that and in your book you really outline that very very well and you give great examples and i was really fascinated by that i I actually didn't realize there were people that were only left brain or only right brain i I guess i'd never really considered that that was somebody's reality and it sounded just kind of wild and astonishing and i thought boy that's a different you're those people are experiencing the world in a completely different way well, the research, if you, if you look, the left-right brain research has been around a long time, so long that it got popular, and the people just dismissed it outright, and they said, well, there's not too much to this. And now it's kind of making a comeback. There are researchers like myself, and there are people like Ian McGilchrist does an excellent book, The Master and His Emissary. And what he talks about is uh, kind of the next trend where this left-right brain thing is coming back. And the way it's coming back is that it's not so much that the left and right sides process completely different information, they just process the world in a different way. So we kind of have two modes of processing reality. And this left brain mode of reality is very serious. It takes, you know, it has, it focuses on categories, labels, it takes beliefs very seriously. And it's that kind of like me against the world, friend or foe kind of mentality. Uh The The right brain is far more in the present moment. And then it loses all those uh, labels. It's far more into seeing connections rather than division. And you can feel how we go through our days kind of going back and forth, like the different selves. Yeah. Well, of one self that feels the connection and, and, and is in the moment. And then sometimes we switch over and we get into that left brain seriousness. And some work issue comes up. You get that one email. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it triggers that left brain. And then all of a sudden we get into, oh, this has to happen. And, and you get out of the moment because you go back into kind of bringing the past back up. And then you have all these potential future things that might happen. And that's associated with all those. That's just with anxiety and worry. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because anything like like a book like yours and any kind of teaching, I've always felt like it has to be applicable for it to be a value in your day to day life, you know, because if it's something that you just can't touch in the average moments, then what value is it to helping you navigate this world? And yesterday I was in the midst of finishing your book yesterday and, uh, I got an email that just triggered me because it had all the markers. Well, I got a voicemail through my job that had all the markers that would just make you think someone was frustrated with you. They were waiting on something. Now for me, I didn't even know who this person was. They, They were, I was somewhere in their chain of communication sort of at the tail end. And so I had to assume all this stuff to even try to understand, you know what I mean? Like I was going, okay, oh. they're, they're frustrated about something. I'm not really the point, the person they need to direct it at, but my left brain kicked in and I could feel my, my, my getting my skin getting splotchy. I was mm-hmm. getting a little upset because they had directed their frustration at me through this voicemail. I was making all these assumptions as, cause I guess, cause I was in the middle of your book. I, uh, I was, it was, it made me acutely aware of all those sensations. And I consciously made an effort to look at this person. I didn't know them, but to go, well, hang on. And I took a right brain approach. 
they're in the midst of a pan this pandemic shutdown too. They're trying to kick their business off. I'm sure they're frustrated with they're they're, they're trying to survive like the rest of us. And so I started taking this bigger picture approach. So when I did get into the meat of the communication, I was able to use a more compassionate tone and to put words in that communication to let them know that, hey, we're in it together. I'm here to help you. So the third communication I got was like it was actually like a light apology. Yeah. And, and then we had a good conversation and I felt like I almost made a new friend, if you'll if I'll, I'll use that word. Yeah, I was, it's, it's, it's interesting because it was all that stuff in your book was really applicable. Like in that moment, I thought, man, how interesting when you can apply it to a small thing. How valuable that's, that's it what, is. That's just such a wonderful example. And it's exactly what I was trying to get through with the book. This this idea that um, the left brain is like a program. It, it, it's, a, it's a very ancient program and it's it was hardwired for us to survive. And so it sees the world very black and white. You know, you're either my enemy or my friend. And if you're my friend, I'm really just trying to get somewhere with you. I'm, I'm, you know, it's not about connections. And so we can become more conscious exactly in the way that you put it. When you feel that kind of triggering and you can feel it, it's a fight or flight response. You can feel your nervous system engaging. And when you feel that, you can start to become conscious of it and you can become aware that, OK, well, and then you can ask yourself certain questions like, OK, well, if this really is who I am, getting back to that real basic question. Yeah. Then I should just be able to turn it off, and 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 it's, it feels like such a computer a computer program in the same sense that it's inflexible, it's on autopilot, and it makes so many assumptions. It's you know it fills in all the blanks. Yeah, right. And, It'll and, make you think that someone is um, attacking you, like or uh, you'll you'll take like even especially in this world of written communications where it's like constant just texts and emails. We that left brain wants to apply, at least to me, under in the framework of your book, it applies a voice to things. It it adds meaning to things that isn't there, uh, and it does. It's like a, it's a us versus them mentality, and I don't want to live like that. Honestly, I know where that goes for me. You know, coming from a family that has these things that that we lived like that. You know, in a watching for aggression markers and stuff like that. And you don't know that's happening to you. And I know I have that in me. So I have to watch it. Like it's a, you calling it a master. I was like, Oh yeah, this is exactly what that feels like. I get that. And it's one of those things that uh, not, it works for some people, but for people like you and myself and, and, and lots of other people, we recognize that this isn't working. Yeah. Yeah. And we really do want to change. It's like putting on a horribly uncomfortable pair of shoes, but you've worn them for so long, you're you're kind of afraid to take them off because you're just so used to the suffering. Yeah, right. It's comfortable. Well, it's an identity. It's like a shell in the skin and you think it's the whole of you. And uh, yeah, crawling out of that is very important. And it does connect back to, and you talk about that in your book, which I loved, it does connect back to these other figures, these, you know, wisdom masters, you get the Buddha, Siddhartha. And I love that you made that connection because I've, I've said that often. I said, you know, in fact, what made me think of it, I went to a, a Buddhist uh, garden festival at a temple not too far from here last year. And I was telling my children, you know, it was uh, the Buddha's birthday. So I said it was, it was a festival, you know, not unlike Christmas to them. And they were fascinated because they were treating it like Christmas and there was a lot of high um, spiritual symbols everywhere. And sometimes I think in religion, even you can get caught up in all of that. But down at the very base core is just this man who 
had has you know lived a certain life and that life is not working right he sees that there's something broken and uh at the core of that he just tries to figure that out and he does figure that out and i i'm that and that's to me just a very simple way of outlining that and and it opens the door to so much i mean you you made that connection in the book and i guess it just it was fascinating to me because we don't typically for me i don't typically hear these things talked about in a a scientific way you know it's always with the, when you add the word spiritual to it it almost immediately implies that that has nothing to do with science and science and I, needs to validate something before it can be considered real in the the logical world that we live in right <laughs> yeah and it's a left brain kind of black and white thinking like well, if it's spiritual, it can't be scientific. And of right. course, when you get into that right brain modality where it's finding connections, instead of saying, well, no, these things are too different, you start making the connections between the two. And that's when you, it's, it's, it's still amazing to me when I read some of the um, first lectures the Buddha gave, how relevant they are, how he was the first cognitive psychologist. And how he had these insights, and he didn't have research, he didn't have uh, big grants or brain imaging equipment, and he was literally just going on his ability to figure out suffering and, and, and the source of suffering, and, and how is there a way out? Yeah, and you talk about that, something I, I was really fascinated with in the book about metaphor and that use of metaphor. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that on the show today, actually. You know, because I, I, once you brought it up, I thought, man, it's interesting how often I even find myself leaning on metaphor because there's concepts that can't be – I feel like they can't be explained without metaphor. They, they mm -hmm. kind of become uh, too big almost without something to apply them to. Metaphor, and if you look at any spiritual teacher, they almost always engage in metaphor to get their message across. I think the Buddha used it was hundreds, if not thousands, of different metaphors in his teachings. But you find this with every spiritual teacher. And the interesting thing about metaphor is it's, it's the way the right brain understands, because the right brain is much more in, in, in reality. It's in the moment. It's in reality. And what metaphors do is they take some kind of abstraction, but they ground it in actual reality. And that's what all understanding is about. That's why it's very hard to um, uh, understand things that are terribly abstract. So my daughter is dealing with some very difficult issues in calculus and stuff with her schoolwork. And the problem she's having with it is there, it has no connection to actual reality. They're just abstract thoughts, and they have no way back uh, so we can touch them and see them and, and experience them directly. And so that's the wonderful thing about metaphor. And, of course, people with right brain damage, they lose this ability for metaphor, and they take everything seriously. Yeah. And so you, you could, if you engage in metaphor or sarcasm or irony, they will take you at an absolute literal level. Because that's what the left brain does. The left brain is very, very literal, and the right brain always seems to go a little bit deeper and sees that connection and, and sees ex what you really mean. Yeah, that's fascinating because it makes you it makes me at least it, it made me start to think about people I've engaged in my life and go, huh, this might explain why the relationship maybe wasn't clicking. Whether it's just a friendship or even intimately, because that person would tell. I'm more uh, metaphorical. I like to I like to use symbols and and ideas and express them that way. I'm very expressive, and that's I can understand things better that way, visually through story, 
uh, our irony, all of those things. But I, you know, you meet someone and you go, Oh, they're not, none of those things that you're putting out there like that have any meaning at all. And you're going there's, and it makes you feel like there's just, Oh, we're not getting along. There's a lack of connection. They don't like me. You know, you start for me yeah. as somebody who's looking for those markers of, um, affirmation, you're not getting that back. And so there's your brain starts telling you, Oh, they don't like you or, Oh, you're doing something wrong. You start believing that narrative. It could just be a difference in the, in the leaning left or leaning right. Is that what I'm understanding? Am I framing that out kind of properly? Absolutely. I, I would, that's exactly what the message of the book is, is that these two modes of existence. And when you feel like you're not clicking, it's often because you know, a person is deeply into a left brain processing mode. And in that mode, you're going to take everything very literally. In fact, it's funny. I um, just had an issue at work where uh, it came down to like, I was supposed to check some little box a couple months ago <laughs> and I did check it. And now I'm in kind of all this quote trouble, you know, cause right. I was, and, 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 and for me, that's a very left brain kind of thing. It's like, no, these symbols are serious. You were supposed to check that. And on this date, you see how the date is there? You were <laughs> supposed to do this. On, and my right brain just has a very difficult time taking any of that seriously. I'm like, oh, man. It just scribbles on a piece of paper. So I'm like a, that, too. I am. I'm like, it's, is it, does it really matter a fixed date and time? I'm like that, too. <laughs> because what for when you get into the right brain processing mode, it's all about the underlying meaning. Sure. What was the intention? Well, you know, it's not really about the written law. It's what was the meaning of it? Yeah. And, and when you're when you're connecting with people and it's like, well, look, and like maybe you say something and it's and it's and it's really doesn't make sense on the surface. But I get what you mean. And it doesn't even matter what you said. I'm, I'm connecting with you at a deeper level. Yeah. And then we're kind of on that same thing. And I'm like, oh, and you say, oh, I didn't mean it. I'm like, no, I know what you meant. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> but when you're at, when you're dealing with that, the left brain can be so literal sometimes that 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 the underlying meaning is lost and and you're so focused on the surface level stuff that you can spend so I when I, when I I actually did my first book and I did it self publishing and I had just had a lot of fun with language I made up a lot of stuff I would do <laughs> things like I would just um play with grammar and spelling and, and 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 I got a very interesting reaction from my audience people were they weren't happy with that <laughs> they took it very seriously they're like oh no you know you can't you can't have a bunch of like commas after a sentence. That's interesting. I'm like, okay. And I was just like, sure I can. Why not? And, and and they're like, well, that's not right. And I was like, but that's just the way my right brain processes it. That's and, so fascinating that you're bringing this up. I just had this conversation with a friend of mine. She sent me some writing she did and she goes, I feel like I'm using too many commas. I was like, oh no. I was like, mine's full of commas. I use them for inflection. And, yeah. and it's like, I'm, I can hear my voice and, and they, I use them to, to uh, annotate that I've made a shift in tone and all this stuff. And she goes, yeah, but is that like proper? And I said, you need to probably talk to somebody else because <laughs> that's not how I write. I write yeah. in that way and and it's not accepted very well. You know, somebody will come in and they'll correct it. It's that left brain thinking. And the world seems like as you, as I'm listening to you, it almost makes me think we live out. Our society is this big left brain structured world. It's kind of suffocating to a large degree. I mean, at least in my thinking, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm leaning light, right brain, you know? Yeah, and no, I, I, I think it's very difficult for people like us. And I'm happy, I know it, I'm helpless to Sorry for interrupting the conversation, but I have something I need to tell you about. 
You may or may not know this, but this podcast is produced in the city of Sulphur, Louisiana, one of the sister cities that make up Southwest Louisiana. All of my childhood memories are wrapped up in the city of Sulphur. It's my home, and it's been a good home for most of my life. There is a growing diversity of unique businesses, services, and events in Sulphur, each with a rich and colorful story to tell about their particular place in this little jewel on the west side of the Calcasieu River. My mission is to promote good news, to put a positive signal out in the world. That's why my team at Parker Brand Creative Services has created the new brand, Sulphur Today. Here's how it works. Post your Sulphur event, service, photos, videos, or information using the hashtag SulphurToday. That's it. My team and I will scan and curate those posts through the social media platforms we've put in place. Before you make your post, just type hashtag, that's a pound sign for the folks that don't know what a hashtag is, and the words sulfur today with no space. My team at Parker Brand is monitoring this tag right now, and they're ready to create positive digital curb appeal for our city by sharing all the very best sulfur has to offer through the Sulfur Today social media pages. As the Sulfur Today project grows, we will be scheduling interviews and video sessions with businesses, events, and services so they can tell their story of Sulfur Today in a series of ongoing micro-documentaries. Look for the eye-catching Sulfur Today sign when you're out and about, and be ready. We may be stopping by to visit you for a photo op. And don't forget to stop by the Parker Brand Creative Services Studio in Sulphur to grab a Sulphur Today decal for your vehicle or business. We want people visiting our area to know that they can find all the wonderful things we have to offer with ease and be a part of our history by utilizing the Sulphur Today pages or by searching the Sulphur Today hashtag. Do you want to help us tell the story of Sulphur Today? Here's what I need you to do right now. Visit and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash sulfur today. And be sure to share positive sulfur information and post often using the hashtag sulfur today. Now, back to find the good news. Just quote, I forget, I think it was Ian McGillcrest in his book, he mentioned it. And he, and he put it very, he's very much into the idea that we live in a left brain world. And he put it really well. He said that uh, our modern left brain world is a bureaucrat's dream and a poet's nightmare. Oh man, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 I really empathize with people who have difficulty with the bureaucracy. And and there's another quote he also said I thought was very interesting that talked about our modern frustrations, and it was something like. If you're going to sin against God or the bureaucracy, sin against God. God will forgive you, but the bureaucracy will not. Isn't that the truth? Man, God, that is beautiful, and it's true. It's a, it's exactly how—and it, it cuts right into my heart because that is—I would almost say secretly that's that's really my, my song right there. I mean, you know, because, I mean, at the core of who I am, I'm like, enough already with uh, the structure. And, I mean, I have to wonder— if that doesn't come, at least for me, and maybe a lot of other people, maybe you too, if it doesn't come from having already lived like that once, like I kind of go, look, that was probably the source of my suffering to begin with. And when I finally had that little crack of clarity, I was like, oh, I, I'm going to rage against that machine to some degree. I mean, I, I you know what I mean? Like I, I know where that goes for me and it's not happy. It's frustrating. 
uh, living on the face of a clock is what I've often called it. I'm like, I'm just, I can't get my foot off the hand of the, the clock. And that's not how my brain wants to live. It's not, or my brain, it's not how I want to live. I am quotey fingering. I, <laughs> because I've, I've sensed, I've tasted that freedom in small doses and I want more of that and less of the ticking. Uh, I, it's very well put in, in a sense that uh, for particularly for those of us, and that's the people I'm usually speaking to who I, who pick up my book and read it and have a positive response with it, are people who have had enough of left brain processing. And, and, and they're the ones who have been mostly affected by the imbalance in our culture. And they're the one, they're the exact ones who get triggered and get, you know, it, it's a, it's a difficult spot for them. They've had enough of the left brain. They've had a dose, a little bit of the freedom of the right brain. And, and this idea, like, um, I was, uh, in the car once with my daughter and she was spelling for a, uh, she was practicing a spelling, um, thing that was coming up and, and I misspelled a word. And I told my wife, I said, well, there's a lot of ways you can spell a word. And she looked at me and she's like, no, there really isn't. <laughs> And it was very a moment. I was like, "Wow, that's true." I guess according to the rules, there really is only one way to spell a word. But in my in my right brain world, you could spell words any way you want. I mean, within limits, you know. I mean, it's a, and this is the funny thing. It's it, there's a thing that was going around the internet. I think I actually put it in the book about, and it goes something like, according to research at Cambridge University, you can mix up the words, and and they the words are totally mixed up, and people can read it. We're so good at abstracting the meaning of something that you can misspell and you can do commas everywhere and we still get the meaning for it. And so one wonders, like, why are we so caught up in the the particular rules of it? Yeah. And so, for, I, But I think for people like us, particularly who have had enough of the left brain and, and we want to bring back balance, we're ready to oh, be more open to more right brain processing at, at a cultural level. Bringing right. back poetry, bringing back music for no reason, and 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 this realization that look, I know the rest of you think it's Wednesday, and I get that, <laughs> and it works. <laughs> you know, I get it. It works, and and it's certainly helpful. You know, it helps to say, look, let's do this on three o'clock and this day, but you know, let's not take it too serious. It's interesting, man, because I was I remember listening to Janis Joplin one time. I was out w working on a a land surveying crew long time ago. And, and I don't remember what song it was, but there's one of her songs where she just kind of goes on this sort of free flowing spoken word thing. She's not really even singing. And, and at one point she says, it's all the same effing day, man. Yeah. And I, I, for, you know, I know it was just a track on a song, but out there in the middle of the woods, I was like, yeah, right. Yeah. And it really just breaks you out and go, what day is it if you start to scale back and look at things from a, you know, it, it, it what, what the heck's a day? What's a, what's a yeah. calendar in that scope of things? And that, that gets into sort of that formlessness, malleable, broad scope picture where the eye for me begins to melt away. And I go, where am I in this? It's funny. I had all kinds of thoughts when I was reading your book. It just jarred so many old memories up. And one was, I remember a, uh, when I was younger, some Jehovah's Witnesses had come to the house. And I don't know, I had to be 21 or 22, and they handed me a little book. And in that book, I still have it actually in one of my boxes. And in that book, I, I was flipping through it, you know, after they left, and there was a picture of our galaxy. 
and it had a little pointer on it and one of these little white dots it said you are here this is our solar system and i leaned in on it and i looked and for me that was the first time i ever had really been exposed to the scope was in that little pamphlet and i just thought in my head like how insignificant i can't even identify our planet so what the heck am even am i even what am I? You know, like it, it was one of those big picture things. And it, I guess, again, it cut into that that territory that your book gets into. And I guess all these, you know, Buddhism, Taoism, all the Eastern religions get into or even mystical Christianity gets into. It's like there is almost no I. But in the same token, in your book, you get and I want to talk about this. I'll get off track. I wanted to make sure we got to it. We, you talk about consciousness and that gets really interesting when you start to talk about what is consciousness and morphic fields and things like that. I thought that was super interesting. And it's a place that you could find sometimes under reviews. It's been interesting and I get different feedback. Some people really enjoy it and they like going to that place. And then some people like to stay within that kind of, you know, traditional limitations of Western science and, and they don't want to venture off into some place a little less known. And so it's a little risky when you start getting into that. But for me, that's where I really enjoy going and, and looking at consciousness and, and um, pointing out that so much of our understanding of consciousness has been influenced by the thinking mind. So much so that for, in my opinion, most Western theories of consciousness confuse the thinking mind with consciousness itself in the same way that we confuse the thinking concept of who we think we are with who we really are. And, and, and the more you get uh, caught up into the habitual aspects of the thinking mind, the, you fall for it. And these things seem incredibly real. People, will, they take their name, they take their job very seriously. And, and these are tough ways to live because all of that is very temporary. Mm-hmm. And, and jobs come and go, identities, the social construction these socially constructed identities come and go very quickly and that can make life very difficult if that's your identity. Yeah. You know, and if- that, that was fascinating for me too. It made me, yeah, you talked about that a lot in there and I, I was, I, again, have dredged up memories of, of moments where something I trusted in fell apart. Uh, with, I was, I'm, I was previously married and so that first marriage fell apart and I remember the moment that that I, that it really was clear that it was dissolving and it was going to be gone. And when you've lived almost a decade of your life in an identity as this person's spouse, uh, we have children together. This is our home. This is these are the jobs we have. These this is these are my in-laws, all that stuff, whether you're conscious of it or not, as you're saying, it's building an identity I mean, you're not even choosing it, really. It's just happening, and it's forming like a callus or a, a wrinkle, and then yeah. all of a sudden, it's gone. It's like it's unraveling, and you can't pull it back, and you don't want to pull it back. You choose to let it go, but I remember that was also a big cracking moment of identity for me. I was like, okay, I I, I can choose to be someone new in this moment, or I can just fall apart. It's interesting trying to navigate those times whenever you have this understanding to some degree of who I am is not fixed. 
yeah. it doesn't cause you as much suffering. I think that ultimately gets to the good work of your book, in my opinion, is that when you take that perspective, your suffering, your level of suffering starts to go down. When you go through these transitional or bardo states, you know, in your life, you're going, oh, uh, I'm not, I don't have to, I don't have to try to grasp and hold this sand falling through my fingers and try to keep this thing formed. I can let it go and let whatever's coming next as my temporary identity sort of flow through and morph. And am I, am I making even, even making sense? I don't know. It's kind of free form thinking, but it, it's what I gathered from your book. That was the healing part of your message mm-hmm. overall. Oh, absolutely. To let go of who you think you are. And particularly over the last few months, a lot of people have struggled with this. Um, They've had, they've had, you know, habitual thought patterns that were identified that that's who they thought they were. They, they, these uh, habitual thought patterns and, and, and going to a certain place and, and going to a building and, and, and they were this employee at this certain place and this is what they did. And, and they confused who they really were with that habit. And then all of a sudden the habit's gone and they're not sure who they are at that point. Right. And so, and, but that's a wonderful opportunity for growth because if you can, if you can let go of that thought of who you thought you were, it opens up to the greater mystery of who we really are. And I'm happy. I know it. I'm I hate to pause the program, but I want to ask you something. Did you know that you can help me and my team at Parker Brand Creative Services grow the Find the Good News signal? For less than a fancy cup of coffee, you can become an Early Risers Club patron on our Patreon page. What's Patreon? Well, it's a way for creators to fund their projects by pooling support from those really passionate people that believe in what they're doing. Do you believe in what we're doing with Find the Good News? I hope you do. We believe that there's already enough negative news in the world, even right here at home, and that good people doing good works deserve a platform to speak from too. That's why we created Find the Good News, and we believe in that simple mission. Maybe you believe in it too. If you do believe in finding and sharing good news, then head over to our Patreon page right now or check out the link in the show description. For a commitment of $3.33 a month, you can join the Early Risers Club of Find the Good News Patreon supporters and get access to the B-Sides, a patrons-only podcast with the crew behind Find the Good News, Parker Brand Creative Services. Each time we level up, the Patreon rewards will get bigger. If you're tired of old news, bad news, and fake news, help support Find the Good News at patreon.com slash findthegoodnews. That's patreon.com slash findthegoodnews. Now, back to the episode. Have you have you read? I'm sure you have the uh, Zen and the Art of Motors, Motorcycle oh, Maintenance. One of my absolute favorites. Yeah. Absolutely has to be. I, I thought of that book so many times when I was reading your book because uh, Phaedrus's Blade. I kept thinking of it over and over and over again. I was like, I haven't thought of this in so long, but it reminded me of this left brain idea, just of slicing and categorizing and just cutting things down to their components. And in fact, honestly, when I first got into Buddhism and started practicing, I I remember thinking uh, that it if I wasn't careful, it could almost become nihilistic, you know, like looking. I, I remember going through a short period of time there where I may have been in danger of being in that mode where I would look at everything as its parts. 
mm-hmm. like people as their parts. I go, oh, almost like they weren't real. And that's kind of messed up, actually, because it was uh, lacking compassion to some degree. It wasn't cold. I don't know how to describe that, actually. It was almost like because I could see their parts, I almost didn't, like, well, they're they're like me. They're not real. Mm-hmm. It didn't mean I didn't I'm- care, but it was like I had this sense of nothing was real almost it was a strange like the matrix kind of mentality if that makes any sense no it makes a lot of sense that's a that's an absolute left brain way of processing and and they've studied this even in birds they've studied how um the left side of the brain never really sees the entire picture it breaks everything down into little parts and it will process instead of seeing the kind of soul of a human being the kind of essence it just sees little parts one at a time yeah and it's never actually able to capture the um and some people say maybe it's it's the left brain's attentional system it's just very uh limited and it can't you know kind of it's not vast enough to kind of see the the whole person yeah kind of drive you batty i mean to a degree i mean you know just seeing everything as little pieces On, on the other on the other Part of that, though, it it can almost if the right brain is in play, it's almost like the healer. You know, it can take all those components and go, oh, yeah, there are all these components left brain, but see how they all play together and form together and flow together. You know, I wonder if you need both. I mean, to some degree, because there is beauty in seeing the parts, I I think. But, yeah, that healing right brain, I I guess for me, that's how I almost envisioned it. You know, you had the master and then there's this healer, you know, it's more of a soft, almost a feminine touch, a mother's touch to some yeah. degree. And you see that disconnect that you were talking about Phaedrus's knife and how it disconnects. And, and the problem is, is it's, for some people, they've disconnected and separated everything and they feel separated from the flow. They feel separated from the big picture. Ah. That's a really tough place to be. I mean, that's one of the main reasons for anxiety and depression, to feel so disconnected. And the wonderful thing about the right brain processing mode is, and I like the way some of the people have put this in the paper, in the research, is it's not that the right brain uh, makes connections. It's that the right brain perceives the connections that are already there, ah. which is the same. We really are part of the whole picture. You know, when you get into the physics of all this and you get into the very, you go down, shrink yourself down to the very, very small, there's really no place where I end and you start. Ah, yeah. Okay. And so this whole idea of slicing everything up into little discrete units is, even at a scientific level, an illusion. I love that because I think that's the healing message, too. You know, I remember Thomas Merton's big awakening in one of his books. I I don't remember which one it was. Maybe it was Conjectures of the Guilty Bystander. But, uh, you know, when he when he looked around and he saw there was no separation between him and others. And, you know, I'm sure you've had moments like that. I've had moments like that. In fact, just a few right a week ago, we were sitting at the beach and with my family, kind of this isolated beach near where we're at. And I was sitting by the the gulf and, and the foam would come in and it was a real bright day. And I was watching the bubbles on this foam and they were so tiny. And I just almost was pausing it in my, in my mind. Right. And I was just looking at these little bubbles and I thought, I bet if I could get close to all these little bubbles in the foam, I could probably just see reflections of myself in each one, these little warped round reflections. But this, these foam is rising and then just dissipating, you know, and and I'm 
somehow me, my reflection is in each one of these little bubbles and it kind of takes you out of yourself for a moment to where you're almost looking back at yourself and seeing yourself as just connected to that wave to some degree in this it, it's a little for me, it was like a little meditation mind exercise because it gets me out of that self-centered moment that we I see, you know, I'm guilty of getting stuck in where I feel important or afraid or all those feelings. They all just sort of go away. And that sense of oneness that you just described sort of emerges at that point where you almost forget you're a human being to some degree. Does that? I, yeah, I think you forget all. I mean, all the definitions that we've been taught. I think it was Krishnamurti who said that once you learn the name of a bird, you'll never see it as it is again. And yes. it's a, so once we learn, oh, I am a human. Oh, I didn't realize I, mean, I have to act a certain. Oh, I'm an introvert. Oh, I didn't. You know. <laughs> right. and, yeah. and we're continuously being taught layer after layer, category after category. And when you realize all that has just something that's been taught to us, then it's the same thing with thinking about white and black and they seem so opposite. And then there's a moment where you realize that there's just this infinite shades of gray and white and black are actually connected, which is to say they're really the same thing, just playing opposites. Yeah, yeah, because you said that in the book. You brought that up about, you know, the yin and the yang. I mean, the one can't be seen without the other. They have a relationship to each other. You know, they, they really don't exist without each other. I mean, that gets into the core, the heart of the Tao Te Ching, right? I mean, these opposites create each other they 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 are really not separate in any degree we we're separating them yeah. and that's one of the it's interesting that non-dualism is sort of a making a little bit of a comeback now and it's becoming more popular and i think one of the things that happens when you get out of that left brain processing mode which is so categorical and focused on uh, discrimination that you start seeing the connections you start seeing that white and black give right they depend on each other. I mean, what would white be without black? What would black be? And so all opposites are connected in that same way. Yeah. And, that, that, and then we start seeing how we're part of the picture. And so even the people that maybe annoy us or maybe we feel like are our enemies, and you realize that even that is a connection. Yeah. You know? It's interesting. I, I, yeah, it, it, it hits me and makes me think again of, of these in, interactions I've had. I had an interaction with somebody that I had considered a friend – and it was an assumption that I had made. And then we had an altercation. And I remember my wife, you know, I felt bad for because I came home really upset and weeping because of this altercation. Because I, I and I've asked myself many times, why was I so upset? Because we weren't like close friends. But I think what I what, what made me upset was that there was like this secondary program that I would call me an, uh, another me that was watching it all take place and seeing f more disc seeing discord and seeing separation and seeing now he's my enemy and I'm his enemy and all the connectors were just breaking down. And there was this, that, again, that secondary version of me inside going almost like mourning over, uh, over it, if that makes any sense, because it's like, no, no, connection is the answer, not separation and, you know, division. Uh, there was just this element of sadness about that. And I think sometimes for me anyway, and maybe that's something I sense in the world and maybe you do, too, is that right now a lot of people are maybe feeling that because there is a lot of division and mm -hmm. discord language, you know, separation, us, them, 
that stuff is sort yeah. of toxic to us, right? I mean, it hurts that that consciousness to me that wants to almost seem like it uh, joins us. It wants to bind us, and instead, we we work actively work to <laughs> divide ourselves. You know. Well, I was in the middle of a lecture one time talking about the left and right brain, and this spontaneously came up with something that a couple students really it just hit them very on a deep level. And I was talking about this idea that Jesus talked about that someone strikes you on the right cheek, and who knows where you know. And most people don't realize that the right half of the body is actually connected to the left brain. And so there's this kind of crossover. Interesting. And the right half, of the, the right brain is connected to the left half of the body. So when someone strikes you on the right cheek, really what that is talking about is like they irritate your left brain. Oh, and wow. The, <laughs> the advice that Jesus gave was incredibly profound at the time, especially considering the, our understanding of neuropsychology. And again, it's always, it's very explicit. Why talk about the right cheek? Why even talk about it? Well, because that's activating the left brain. Of course, the advice is turn and offer them the left cheek, which is to say, if someone irritates your left brain, turn and offer them a right brain mode of processing. That is so awesome. I'm never going to forget that. I love that. I'm telling you that that is the cherry on top of this conversation. I love that. I mean, did you you just did that hit you, or did you like sit and meditate on that, or did it just come to it, you? It just came to me in class one time, and I had about three students who had the oh, same experience. Man. They're like, "That's that," because we've all heard that expression, and we know turn the other cheek has kind of worked its way into our culture, but we've never been no one's ever really offered us a deeper explanation for it because it's hard. Yeah, the truth is, if someone yeah. if someone mistreats you, it's really hard not to. Do the same thing they've done to you back. Yeah. But then when you have a deeper level and you're like, oh, you know, instead of giving more of what they gave me, I need to become more in tune with my right brain, compassionate mode of processing. And if they, you know, irritate my left brain, I need to get out of that left brain mode, get into my right brain, compassionate mode and offer them right the right brain. I love it. I love it. I'm telling you, man, that connects for me because I kept thinking of that right brain as a healer and that just connects in such a beautiful way. I, I don't need to, you know, I need to offer them the healer, right? Yeah. Instead of the fist, you know, or the left brain that is probably calculated that I should strike them back, you know, that they're my enemy, right? right? Instead, yeah. they're something, I, a little thing I've wrote down, it's a little tiny rhyme that I made up for me to a little mantra is that when I stop seeing the other, I become a brother. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, it kind of reminds me of that. It's like when, you know, you hit that, hit me on the right cheek, it activates my left brain and immediately I see you as the other. Yep. But I don't need to offer you the other mentality. I need to offer you the brother mentality, man. That is, <laughs> that's some profound stuff right there. I love it. <laughs> no, it's, it's funny. You put it in exactly just a slightly different way, but you're, that's the exact same message. Oh man. That's some good stuff. I, and, I get excited. I'm like a kid, man, because that's just <laughs> that, that gets me thrilled. Those are the types of things you can carry with you in your life and, and apply like immediately, you know. And when you get into the I've studied the left brain processing mode, which I always call the thinking mind. And when you and the more you process it, the more you recognize it, the more you realize that when people are mean to each other, it's almost always because they've been caught up in this left brain processing mode. They've been caught up in the thinking mind. And if you can start to connect with the the deeper side to them, like look, this is just a program running in their head, but underneath it all is a they're as they've got a right brain compassionate mode of processing too. Yeah. They just yeah. lost touch with it. 
And the more you can set an example of like, look, you know, again, it's this kind of idea that the vibration that we send out is the vibration that's sent back to us. Mm. And if you send out the left brain um, kind of selfish mode of you're going to get that back. If you send out compassion, you'll get compassion back. I mean, does that have any I mean, I may be. You know, I'm just a common guy, so I mean, I may not really fully understand what we're talking about here, but this kind of gets into some of that morphic field territory, at least to me, or or at least an energy field to some degree, because if your brain is thinking a certain way and operating a certain way, I'm assuming it's putting out some kind of a electric pulse or, or field, right? So in the collective conscious, conscious sort of situation i mean the more of us who are thinking in a left brain way i'm just gonna say it like that potentially that's almost polluting the collective consciousness to to cause more of that thinking does that am i saying that in any way that makes sense oh absolutely and it's interesting because just to give your readers something they may want to follow up on um there's there's a place called the heart math institute Okay. And what they have studied is the electromagnetic field that's actually generated by the heart rather oh, than the brain. okay, okay. And it turns out that, like, the electromagnetic field generated by your heart is – it could go out for meters surrounding you. Wow. And the idea is that when two people are kind of connecting, that the that, that field is sort of – Entangled. Um, huh? Entangled in, in, in with each other. Wow. And, wow. And, and, that, and that's – and it's interesting, too, because um, they've looked at – because of course the Earth has an electromagnetic field also, and they've looked how collective events, and we are in a collective event right now. That these, that the collective event, that emotional um, uh, collection of uh, vibrations, could actually alter things on an Earth level, and they, and they have evidence that there are times uh, like nine eleven and, and and times of collective emotional distress where they, our individual emotion affects the actual um, electromagnetic field of the earth itself. That's fascinating to me, honestly, because, I mean, it does, if you take that and and play it out in so many other things, it it might explain things that almost don't seem explainable, especially herd mentality. You know, I've I've heard lots of talks where people go, how could somebody fall for a cult? How could somebody get in a cult? And you meet and you go, oh, they're smart people. And in fact, I just got through reading a book about cults and it it had me for a while. Everything looked like a cult when I read that book, you know, but it got me wondering. I was like, yeah, how does this happen? What makes me wonder if maybe there's something else going on there that isn't just about uh, what a person's thinking. Maybe there's some entanglements there that we just can't see or really comprehend that cause herd mentality or herd action and people start to do things that are out of character as a group. And you're going, well, and, and you want to believe it's like, Oh, if you can just tell them information and then they see it, Oh, I shouldn't be doing that. That's unhealthy. I've made a new decision, but it goes beyond reason sometimes. And you're in it. For me, it's a head scratcher. I'm like, well, how do you, how do you get there and how do you break free makes me wonder. I mean, just again, I have no, nothing to base that on, but just hearing that makes me think there might be something there. Well, you know, in terms of evolution, we're so programmed to be social animals. We're, we're, we're programmed to be part of the herd Mm. and, and that's part of that, you know, our very basic programming. So it is very difficult. Um, I found several times in my 
life where I, I would find the herd going in a certain direction and I had to literally pull myself into to wake myself up, slap myself, like, wake up. What are you doing? Yeah. Their guilty. natural tendency. <laughs> yeah. I'm guilty of that too. I mean, I've, in fact, to, to, you know, I guess maybe even destructive ends sometimes where I've like, wow, I actually let something completely fall apart because I followed the herd, you know, and I, I almost prefer to have a little bit of a rebellious streak. I try to keep it active because I do want to stop. I want to go, hang on. If everybody's going this way, I have this knee jerk tendency to stop and wait. <laughs> Hold on. I don't know because I need a minute. I need a minute to process this before I just get in line anymore. I, I don't know what changed, but I, I do have a hard time now getting in a line and just following along, you know, without at least thinking about something. And it's probably a really positive thing to stay awake, stay conscious. Yeah. You know, the programming is a, a it's a unconscious kind of process and people get into mob mentality and cults and they get into all of this, not being terribly conscious at the time. Yeah. And so the more we can wake up, what am I doing? You know? Yeah. Well, that's definitely what the book's all about. I mean, I, I felt like it was a great compliment. I mean, to anybody that's studied any Eastern religions or philosophies, you touch on a lot of those things in the book. But I will say what was really refreshing about it was it wasn't just sort of a recap of that type of information, right? I mean, you you drew on it. But you, it was you. You used it in examples and in research, and it was wonderful. I I learned so many things I had really never heard of before. We had actually just one of the things you talked about in the book that I thought was fascinating because we had actually just watched a magician do it. Was the uh, where you hide the left arm and you put the prosthetic arm in the front and they actually feel the sensations. I thought that was a joke. I was watching this magician do it to somebody, and I said, "There's no way." this guy's responding this way because he was like burning his fingertips and stuff and mm -hmm. kind of freaking the guy out. And he was really in pain and poking him with needles. I, I thought they were, I thought it was a trick, but you talked about that in your book. And I was like, wow, the mind is such a strange thing. What it'll do, how much power it has. And it falls for tricks and, uh, and, and it falls for tricks. Like you said, at a sensory level, like I do the fake hand illusion in my class and it always, gets a really good response because they can't believe <laughs> yeah. that this fake upper hand, that their, that their mind will just assume it's part of their body. And, right. and it works for about half the people out there. Yeah. And so in that same, in that same way that if, you know, if the mind falls for those tricks, the mind could fall for all kinds of tricks. And one of the things that I've been um, uh, working on with the second book is, is kind of outlining all the tricks the mind falls for for but, but but more on an experiential level so when you when you fall for it you realize ah you know there's the mind again so every ah. time we fall for it we can kind of become better at recognizing th that's mind and the more you recognize that's mind the more you also at the exact same time you realize that's not who i am mm, yeah that's a lot that that helps a lot of people with anxiety i imagine you know my son is dealing with some anxiety right now and we're having lots of these types of conversations about well, we we've come to call it the guest house, you know, and say, okay, you have to take an observer role of your own mind. And when these thoughts come in, you treat it like a dinner party. They don't live there. They're going to mm -hmm. be there. You, see, you know what they look like. They've come before, but they're going to leave. And then you get to have your mind back. So don't, don't see these things as you don't, don't adopt yeah. them and nurture them and ask them to move in, you know? And, uh, 
Because it does, you, you start to think those things are you. I mean, heck, I've lived that way. I know. I mean, I remember, like I said, that whole adult children's of alcoholics thing was a real eye opener because I went, oh, all this, again, all that stuff. It's not me. It's just stuff that's floating around my brain recorded and yeah. made little trenches in my mind that I didn't even know were had all the stuff tucked in there. It's like being at the airport and you pick up a bunch of luggage and, <laughs> and, you, and you think that's you, you know, and, it's, and, it's, and why are you carrying that stuff around? Well, because someone told me to. Mm-hmm. So, so I was taught. I was taught that this is who I am and that I have to carry this stuff around. You know, it's right. interesting. I, it makes me think of this recent translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead that I was reading the the introduction by the Dalai Lama. And he was talking about reincarnation. I'd never really uh, had it put this way before, but he was talking about how, you know, everyone's looking for like this past life where you have all these details and you're going to remember all this stuff. And and he said, you know, at least in this particular translation, what he was saying, he said, well, if someone dies young, the chances are in an accident, the chances of them actually carrying over memories and things like what people think of is very slim, at least from a Tibetan understanding. He said that because you don't have these things that are carved into your, into the mind. And so that was the difference. He was saying, you know, the mind sort of the consciousness carries and, and carries things. It's not memories necessarily. It's almost like the energy of memories. It was really fascinating stuff, but he said, you know, someone like an, an older Lama who has lived their whole life, They've one, they've have all these memories and they have all these things that they've done and experiences, but then they've also worked consciously to free themselves from the self. So when they transition, you, you're not going to have them come back and say, oh, I remember, you know, that I like vanilla ice cream or something like that, yeah. because because they've actively worked to drop all these identifiers. And I was like, wow, I never really. I never really had thought of that, you know, and then the whole Bodhisattva concept from that that perspective before. So they get to relive another life, essentially, and pick up new things, you know, and the luggage, as you say. Uh, I don't know. It was really a fascinating thing to really to, to dive in that. And even though whether you someone believes in reincarnation or not, I still thought the concepts were good to to think about as far as uh, who you are. Well, do you want to carry that luggage around in this lifetime? And who wants to carry it around for many lifetimes? Right. And so I've pondered this in another book where I ask, you know, what do you really want to take to heaven with you? Mm. Oh, I mean, so are we going to be in some afterlife for a million years and you're going to still call me Chris? Am I still going to be a college (laughs) professor? (laughs) Do I really want to take all this stuff to eternity (sighs) with me? Oh, Chris, man, you make, look, this is funny. You'll, you'll get a chuckle out of this because I I used to go to this morning prayer thing and, and I got in a conversation with a lady one morning and we were talking, she was talking about heaven and she said, yeah, I told my husband, I said, well, I hope when you go to heaven, you don't look like Santa Claus anymore. And I kind of, we, I could tell when she said that, that she and I had two completely different concepts, you know, of what life after death is. And I said, uh, I said, yeah, I said, you know, I said, it is fascinating though. I said, you gotta, I gotta wonder when your brain rots in the ground, you know, and your bones are dust and all the thing that's holding your memories isn't even there anymore. It's just dried and gone. Uh, what, what does that mean in the afterlife? And she just looked at me and she put her hand in my face and she shooed like a fly. She goes, I can't think about all that stuff. And she just walked off. <laughs> 
I, I I came home. I said, "Man, I think I was trying to have a, uh, I was trying to have a, a conversation that wasn't going to happen." You know, because <laughs> she was, you know, she was like, "My husband's going to look like Santa Claus because he's got a white beard." I'm thinking that's just the way it's going to be, you know. And that's the conversation that you know it is the the conversation of all conversations. You know, it always in philosophy it always ends up leading to okay, what is this? What's this trip really about? Yeah. What's life and death, and what's happening? I'm happy. This episode's Fishing for Goodies Fishbowl sponsor is Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center in Sulphur, Louisiana. I don't know what you look for when you travel, but one of the things I look for when I'm putting together my itinerary is a unique museum or gallery in the city I'm traveling to. I do this almost every time I go to a new city, but if I'm being honest, I'm guilty of not always doing that very thing right here at home in Sulphur, Louisiana. That's really a shame because we have one of the most interesting, historically relevant, and culturally rich corners in any city in the country about two minutes from where I'm sitting right now. I'm talking about the Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center. Have you ever really thought about why our city is named Sulphur? They've got a permanent exhibit on the history of the sulphur industry that answers that simple question and more. You really get a full scope of just how important the sulphur mining industry was to the development of Southwest Louisiana and the impact it had on the rest of the world. Yes, the rest of the world. On the same property, right next door to the museum, is the Henning Cultural Center, presenting some of the most interesting, modern, and culturally relevant local art shows I've ever seen. My dear friend Tom Trahan and the Brimstone Historical Society have really worked hard to give us this treasure, and it's a multifaceted jewel that I plan to take advantage of more often. You don't have to wonder what their hours are, or how to get there, or what shows are coming up. Just go to brimstonemuseum.org, like I did, and subscribe to their mailing list right there on the homepage. That's brimstonemuseum.org. Tom will make sure you start getting the announcements for each and every new show at the gallery. But you don't have to wait for the mail to arrive to enjoy this historical local treasure. You don't have to be guilty, like me, of overlooking a local wonder that conveniently sits next to the Grove, one of the most beautiful walking parks in southwest Louisiana. Drop in and say hi to Tom for me. Tour the museum and center, and make sure to tell Tom that you heard about Brimstone Museum on Find the Good News. Now, let's take that dive in the fishbowl. But we have this part of the show at the end called Fishing for Goodies, mm-hmm. and uh, every guest we draw three questions out of the bowl, and I drew three questions right before I called you. And so, if you don't mind, we can go through them and let's just see what uh, sure see what happens. All right. So the first question is, what is something you think everyone should do at least once in their life? I think it's something that they already do, but I would put it that they need to become aware that they're already doing it. Okay. And that is become more aware of who, who you are when you're not thinking about yourself anymore. So we have these wonderful, blissful moments all the time during the day when we're not even thinking of it. We don't even exist. The concept, the ego is gone and it's this wonderful flow of uh, maybe cutting the grass, you know, and, and all you're doing is cutting the grass and you're not even thinking and, and you're listening to the birds. And, and, and But the problem is that we, we just trivialize. Oh, we go, oh, I was out of it for a little bit. Uh, no, you're out of it. You were into it. Yeah, man, <laughs> I'm digging that. And so, you know, I, I guess, it, you know, if you could, 
I, I, Alan Watts put it this way. He said, everyone should lose their mind and come to their senses. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's been very powerful for me. As a person who's been plagued and, and suffering has come from the mind to such a heavy degree, that was such a blissful moment when, when, I, when I came to my senses, which is to say, I, I learned to have a few experiences of just mindless, in the present moment-ness. And that to me was just wonderful. That is a wonderful answer. hundred percent agree. I'm chasing that man. And I know that in chasing it, I can't have it. So I have, to, <laughs> I, I have learned it's it just shortly. I think for me, simplifying the Buddha's story has helped me so much. Even just him touching the earth. I've realized that that's what I have to do. I can do all this stuff, man, sit in these postures, do these mudras and all these practices. But sometimes I just need to take my shoes off and feel the grass on my skin and touch the earth and let the wind blow. And just I, I've always said, you know, I've, I've said the same thing. I, I zoned out. But I like that zoning in, man. That's awesome. I need to zone in. That's what that is. Zone in. Yeah. God, great answer, man. Great answer. All right, here's the second one. Your job is to reduce the pain in the world. Where do you start? This, this, you start with what the source of the pain in the world is. And again, there is physical suffering. And, and I don't really talk much about actual physical suffering. Someone has arthritis and um, that's a whole different world. I'm not dealing with any of that. What I'm talking about is the suffering that comes from the mind and our thinking problem. And so for me... Getting at the source would be this kind of, well, for me, it's the really good news. You are not your mind. And, and, good news. and that, that is the, that's the best. That's what my mission, I, I feel this on a very deep level. That's what my mission is, to spread that to people and, 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 and do it on a practical level. So people, you don't have to be a neuroscientist. You, you, just any person can just look at this and go through a couple different practices and realize I am not the thinking mind. And it's the thinking mind that is creating all the suffering. And so you are not your suffering. And that to me is just, that's profound, that's, man. It's just world changing. You're right. If we all realize that one by one, well, wake up. If we all just, as you say in the book, it's not a metaphor. It's one who has woken up, right? I mean. Yeah, you're, you're really awake. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we could all just wake up even to some degree, that that would do it chain reaction of healing would take place. All right. Those are both good. And the answers were awesome. This is another heavy question. Uh, what do you believe in despite having no proof of it? Well, it's a very interesting way to put it. Beliefs are very tricky things. And, and I spent a lot of my time, um, pondering the differences between belief and faith. And so, I'm not very much into beliefs, which is to say, I'm not sure I believe all my beliefs. In fact, I'm not sure which beliefs I even do believe in. But underneath all of those, the one thing I have faith in is that the universe, God, whatever name we give it is intrinsically good. That even our suffering has a point to it. Suffering is pointing us in a particular, there's no, we're not here to pay some price. We're not punished for things that ultimately we will find out at some point the meaning behind our suffering. Whether we find stumble upon it in this lifetime or at some point in, in this trip, we'll find out, oh, 
that's why I was suffering. So beautiful, it, man. It is. It's beautiful. I, I believe exactly what you're saying. I can't, I can't express that anymore. I don't know. It's a mystery. It really is a great mystery. For a time, I was in sort of a Catholic journey, and I was really meditating on these Catholic symbols. And I was like, there's got to be more meaning than just what's on the surface. And one that I all I, I sat and contemplated for a while was the, the image of the sacred heart of Jesus, you know? And I was talking with one of my friends one day, and I said, you know— I know this is a mysterious thing. I said, but when I look at that picture, I said, you know, I see a heart, which to me signifies compassion. Uh, but it's wounded. It's it's cut. It's got thorns wrapped around it. There's it's bleeding. But but it's also glowing and on fire. And that fire isn't like a consum a con- fire of consumption and pain. It's meant to signify passion and love and spirit and i said you know in a way i said when you think about it in a uh like a map it's like that's telling you that suffering is a part of that journey but it leads to this redemptive quality of love and light and compassion and goodness as you're describing this and i don't know how to put my finger on what that means but in that picture it's like you're seeing the answer, the mystery is revealed right there. Suffering is a part of it, and I don't know why, but it leads to somehow in the long plan, this end state of, of final goodness, whatever that means. Got one last question for you. Sure. I'm going to send you one of these coffee mugs right here. It's our Find the Good News coffee mug, but I always awesome. put, I put the last question on the back. And the last question is, did anything good happen today? <laughs> it's it, it you know it's interesting you brought up the uh zendonardo motorcycle maintenance and <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite my favorite all-time quote from that is that um there's an endless landscape of awareness around us and we take this handful of sand and we call it the world yeah and and, and so we don't want to like when you say like has anything good happened today <laughs> So much good has happened today. The real question is, was I awake enough to notice the good that happened today? Oh, man, yes, that's a good answer, too. Was I awake? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, man, that's that's the worst thing is to find out you've been sleepwalking through life. Yeah. It really is. I was, I was sitting, and just to give you an example, like I was sitting here and I was um, in my office playing around with the computer and suddenly became aware that there's a wonderful sound of birds outside. I can hear your birds through your through the <laughs> microphone. I've been enjoying it. I've been noticing that. Yeah. And, and I just sort of sat with it for a few minutes and, and it's, and, and the, but the interesting thing is the good, the, it was happening all morning and it was just me kind of tuning into the good mm. and kind of noticing it. And then once I noticed, it, I'm like, wow, you know, that, that's kind of cool. I was, in, I was enjoying that. It's kind of like the music in the background. Yeah, man. God, you just literally <laughs> said what, the whole mission of this show is, is to tune into the good. I mean, my whole intro, the whole, all the sound effects, uh, I've even had some feedback that this show's intro is a little abrasive because I add a lot of static and like, you know, beacons and whistling and pops because it, it reminds me of that old tech, you know, where you had to, I used to love listening to a CB when I would drive around me and my friends all had them and we'd drive around and talk to truck drivers and stuff. But on long trips, I, I used to love it. And 
it was something to constantly mess with. But I always remember going in there and like turning the gain and the squelch, trying to get that good signal. And so it's exactly what you said when I thought of this show. I thought, you know, that's really what I want to do is we need to do that with all these signals coming into our life. We can tune those things and we can tune ourselves into that stuff, just like you did with the birds, man. I mean, tune in, zone in, right? Yeah, like you like said earlier. Yeah, zone in. And it's just like any habit. The cool thing about kind of zoning into the good is you can make it a habit. And the more habitual it becomes, the it just sort of gains a momentum. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes more natural. It becomes, well, it should be our natural state. Right. I mean, it's it's a more pristine state. I, I feel like it's a more natural state and I want it to be more natural. I want to stay there um, and still be able to look at the suffering in the world and see it, but understand it in a new way, too. Right. I mean, you know, stay in the zone, man. I love it. Chris Niebauer and the book is No Self, No Problem, How Neuropsychology is Catching Up to Buddhism, published by Hierophant Publishing. Man, this has been great. I am so thankful you took the time to talk with me today. This has been a highlight for me. This is what's been good for me today. Oh, it's been real enjoyable on my end also. If people want to buy the book, is there a specific place you like to appoint them? Because we can put a link in the show notes. Just Amazon probably is the easiest way. It has different formats. And um, like we were talking about it uh, a while back, uh, I have a YouTube channel and I go off and explore some different things. It's just Chris Niebauer, PhD, real easy to find. I'll put a link to that because I, as I was telling you, I've kind of become a fan. I mean, you have a lot of great, and you know what else? Your videos are digestible. They're not like hour, two hour long presentations. I mean, you really get into it pretty quick and talk about some really high ideas, man, that are really accessible. I've, I'm probably going to keep watching those. I, I started, like I said, this morning after I finished the book yesterday, I was like, I'm going to go check him out, see what other content he's got. And what a, what a great, and it's a free treasure. I mean, you know, if you want to just access what you're thinking about and working on, that's a great place to go. And I have a Facebook page too. Just no self, no problem. Pretty easy to find. And, um, and the same thing, just kind of explore, um, you know, tuning into the good that kind of, it's been kind of my mission too with this. And, um, and so I have a couple of different ways to get at that. And I also been working, I, I think the, the next book I'm working on is really about, uh, doing what we can to recognize the thinking mind for what it is and finding the bliss that lies uh, beneath the thinking mind, that we're already blissfully happy. We just have this kind of cloud of the thinking mind that makes us think that we're not. Yeah. Well, I'm going to keep reading your work. I need to go back and read your first book because I didn't read it. What was the title of your first book? It it was a self-published. It it really had... Uh, it was the Neurotics Guide to Avoiding Enlightenment. <laughs> I like that title. <laughs> and it was one of these things. It was, um, uh, you know, greatly in need of an editor and and some external help. And so uh, <laughs> I, I found uh, some people at Hierophant that were just really uh, wonderful in terms of guides for me and, and, and gave me some wonderful feedback in terms of how, I mean, you read a book and you think, well, there's one name on there, but it was really a group of people at the publishing company that helped me and guided me through all this. Yeah. That's, what's great about having a good publisher and especially a publisher and looking at the library at Hierophant, they've got a lot of works in this category, I would say of, of bettering your life, you know, whether it's, um, you know, just mental health or spiritual, whatever it may be. They have a lot of, 
great works like that. But uh, I'm I'm definitely a fan. Going to read your next book too. So yeah, when when's that? When's the projection for that to come out? He's still working on it right I'm, now. I I'm hoping next summer. Oh great, that's my goal. Yeah. Well, maybe if uh, maybe we'll do a round two then, whenever that book comes out, have another conversation. That would be awesome. Thanks for listening to my Beacon Series conversation with Chris Niebauer, PhD. If you'd like to experience his book, No Self, No Problem, make sure to visit the links in the show notes. If you found something of use in this conversation, consider helping me spread the good news by supporting Find the Good News at patreon.com slash news. I thank you for pressing play and for syncing up with this good news signal.